Welcome to Bevel, the podcast extension of Canadian Interiors, the longest-running interior design magazine in Canada, published since 1964. I am host and editor-in-chief Peter Sopchak. Bevel is a place where we step away from the photographs and talk with interesting folks about interesting ideas and issues facing the design world today. Architecture is not the result of finance capitalism, but rather is finance capitalism. Just as architecture has helped produce finance capitalism, finance capitalism has helped produce architecture. Those two passages appear early in Matthew Sewell's new book titled Iceberg, Zombies, and the Ultra Thin, and which serves as an indictment of how finance capitalism changes not only architectural forms, but the very nature of our cities and societies. We rarely consider architecture to be an important factor in contemporary economic and political debates, yet Sewell's, an associate professor of architecture at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, demonstrates how unoccupied, ultra-thin pencil towers rising in our cities, or cavernous iceberg homes burrowing many stories below street level, function as wealth storage for the super-rich. While communities around the globe are blighted by zombie and ghost urbanism, marked by unoccupied neighborhoods and abandoned housing developments, all of which are issues on which the discipline of architecture is largely mute. It's a real pleasure to be able to have a chat with you today, Matthew, and I really want to thank you for coming on the show. This is a subject that I don't think gets a lot of attention, so I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Thanks, Peter. I'm uh, really excited to be here and have this conversation with you. Your book is fascinating for many reasons. Uh, One, uh, it's ostensibly about architecture, but it doesn't do what a lot of other books about architecture do, which is praise either the aesthetics or technological mastery or some of the many other positive attributes that architecture brings. Instead, what I love about your book is that it looks at architecture through the lens of money, which is something that many in architectural media shy away from. Uh, You say early in your book that the impetus for it rose from the global financial crisis of 2007-2008. This was a crisis that underscored I think, among other things, the importance that finance obviously has come to play in global capitalism, but it also, for me, I think, underscored how little most of us actually understand the new financial reality we live in. Terms like uh, subprime mortgage-backed collateralized debt obligations, that's a mouthful, or (laughs) credit default swaps uh, were not only new to most of us, uh, we we barely even knew how to figure them out and we couldn't even explain them to our friends at the bar. And to this day, that's still the case. What do we got? 11 years later. So it's into this labyrinthine world of uh, financialization and capitalism that you wade with your book, but you do it with a particular eye to architecture. And what I find interesting is that you make it clear that architecture isn't just a small cog in the mega machine of modern finance, nor is it a bit player in the theater of capitalism. Instead, you say early on, uh, and I quote, this is a line early in the book, architecture is not the result of finance capitalism, but rather is finance capitalism, end quote. And elsewhere in the uh, early chapters, you say, quote, just as architecture has helped produce finance capitalism, 
finance capitalism has helped produce architecture, end quote. Clearly, these are bold statements. And what they mean and what you're saying, you repeat quite often throughout the book. These are not only profound statements, they are at times, I think, profoundly disturbing statements. So all that being said, what I would love to start off with, if you don't mind, is if you could give us a bit of a Coles Notes distillation of your core arguments. I know it's not easy because there's a lot of dense content in the book. You do a great job explaining some really, really complex notions. But for our readers, if you could just can you give us an overview of what your core arguments are in the book. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, uh, let me let me try to do that. Um, I guess I would start by by just revisiting um, capitalism in the broadest sense and finance capitalism in a more particular sense. So you know there are many different types of capitalism. It's uh, it's not a monolithic. Um, entity um, and it's changes, uh, you know, capitalist behavior and capitalist principles change over time. And they're different from place to place, culture to culture. So that allows us to, um, you know, think of capitalism as, as changing through history and having different phases in it. So, so as you got hinted at in your, in your um, really nice encapsulation of some of the things the book does, um, finance capitalism is really a unique mode of capitalism that is different than, say, agricultural capitalism or industrial capitalism. And, and it's possible, and, and many you know, sociologists, economists, um, cultural observers have identified around 1980 as being a, a kind of moment in time where a new uh, phase of capitalism, which is called finance capitalism, kind of begins its ascendancy and, and, and becomes more and more dominant. So to the point that we could say we now live in the era of finance capitalism. And so finance capitalism prefaces uh, a mode of profit making um, that occurs through the issuance and exchange of uh, financial instruments. And, and uh, the easiest way to think of that is, uh, or you're like, well, what's a financial instrument? Um, a stock equity. Um, so buying stock and exchanging stock and say Apple is uh, the company Apple is a, a, a great example of a financial instrument. So the kind of buying and selling and construction of these instruments um, become the, one of the primary and dominant modes of capital uh, production uh, and, and um, accumulation in the era of finance capitalism, our era. Now, Within finance capitalism, though, there are um, certain preferred mediums of capital accumulation. And I argue that alongside stocks in a company like Apple, the products of architecture, so built literally buildings um, in the kind of uh, markets of real estate, are a preferred medium of exchange within finance capitalism. So significant um, that we might say they're the most preferred um, medium, right? So, so finance capitalism um, kind of likes to work through certain channels 
and uh, housing in particular of the a sector of the uh, products of architecture is an exceptionally important ingredient in fi in finance capitalism so and you say well what are some what how can you prove that if you just look at um, you know the 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 sheer magnitude of mortgages and uh, how much they uh, kind of constitute the overall uh, kind of banking business in countries like the United States, Canada, and Britain, it's it's overwhelming. Um, I mean, uh, you know, there are different ways to count how you know do the statistics, but you know, commonly over fifty percent of all all bank loans are, are mortgages, and that captures one aspect of how integral housing, and therefore the design of housing, is to this whole thing. So without the products of architecture finance capitalism as we know it just could not exist so it's you know through a lot of architectural kind of history and theorizations and how folks think of architecture um academics in general and, and a kind of general popular popular belief is that architectural design kind of represents society or mirrors society you know a building looks this way because um, the architects have been influenced by some political or social idea, ideals. And I think um, because housing in particular is so integral and central to the workings of finance capitalism, the design of housing is not reflecting the importance in finance capitalism. It is actually designed in a way that helps it form an integral role in finance capitalism. So this is what I mean that it's, so architecture is not representing finance capitalism, it's actually integral to its working and so integral that it is finance capitalism. Does that make sense? I don't know if that was the Cole's notes. It, it does make sense. I mean, it's like I said, it's uh, it's such a complicated subject that you're making sense. But then while you're making sense, you're bringing up a whole lot of other questions. I should warn everyone who's listening. There is no way I'm going to be able to get deep into some of the uh, major topics that Matthew brings up in the book in uh, in this time slot. Um, but, you know, hopefully he goes on some lecture tours or does some YouTube videos or something. You can all pay attention to, to how he unpacks it. But uh, that said, it does help sort of crystallize a bit of what you're talking about. But it also now takes me to another point. And this is another thing I like about your book a lot is it helps. Uh, you put a lot of effort into helping create a sort of a taxonometric categorization of the types of products of architecture, as you call it, that we're seeing proliferate globally. And they are all examples of this type of uh, financialization of architecture that you talk about. So for instance, uh, terms like zombie urbanism, ghost urbanism, iceberg homes, uh, exurban investment mats, things like that. Uh, you talk a lot about some really interesting examples that are in those. But I'm now bringing this a little more local in my next question by asking, um, how does Canada fit into this tapestry that you weave? You and I are both Canadians. You're based in Vancouver. I'm based in Toronto. My magazine is, is national. We're both paying attention to the evolution of the built environment in Canada. But I want to ask, how does Canada, is Canada, um, how and is Canada being affected by what you're describing? For instance, zombie and ghost urbanism you discuss in examples like Ireland and Spain 
ultra thin pencil towers in New York, fantastic examples of that. Iceberg homes in London, you know, super podiums, financial icons. Where where does Canada fit in all of this? That's a really it's a really great question. Um, you know, I think Canada is playing a very important uh, or occupies a very important and and significant position within um, the financialization of architecture. Um, you know, um, just to maybe touch on some of the things I was I was addressing in your previous uh, question before getting to the specific kind of typologies of, of financialized architecture. I mean, real estate um, plays a massive part in the Canadian economy. Um, you know, we 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 have a set of um, you know policies uh, in the country recently, like very low mortgage rates. Um, you know, and we have a highly financialized society where um, mortgage debt is huge, high consumer debt. Um, Canada, Canada is is um, a, a, an exceptionally financialized society, and it would be, um, at least from my argument, it would be very um, odd if if Canada didn't exhibit some um, some very strong characteristics of financialized architecture. So, to get to your question about zombie housing. I mean, so zombie housing, the way I um, kind of define it in the book is um, epitomized by, um, you know, a high proportion of owned, um, but seldom used housing units. Um, so these, these units are purchased um, for uh, investment logics, often in the guise of pied-a-terres, secondary, third or fourth homes. And uh, there's, no, there's no question, I mean, it's a highly um, controversial topic, but there's no question that Canada is, uh, cities in Canada are exhibiting um, conditions of zombie urbanism. Um, so there's, it's, it's tricky um, to, to quantify the degree of it because it's so contentious and, and how exactly do you measure it? And then frankly, the number of uh, or the, the the there's there's not a lot of entities that it, whose interest it is in to uh, kind of expose this right the the real estate industry certainly doesn't want to expose it the development industry so on and so forth but I mean said that the last Canadian census um, indicates that in Toronto there's roughly a hundred thousand units of uh, vacant or seldom used housing. Uh, studies in Vancouver have shown that certain areas of the city, like Coal Harbor, for instance, in the West End, have uh, you know 25% um, empty or seldom used um, units. Um, so, so there's there's no question that it that it's happening. Um, even just you know anecdotally, um, you know the building that I live in. Um, happens to has 40 units. It's got numerous. Um, empty almost never used units my the, my neighboring unit is owned by uh, a couple who spend uh, almost all their time in toronto and by almost all the time 90 percent of the time and uh, you know they have this as a as a kind of secondary place that they like to visit but is also or visit periodically but is also a a way to participate in vancouver's ever increasing uh, real estate prices so so you know and some people say oh well you know, is 25% that significant? It's only in one neighborhood. Is 100,000 units so significant? And, and I would argue, um, 
you know, that it really is significant. They, that though, you know, taking um, proportions of units out of the, the kind of use value market in this way has a very significant effect impacting overall prices and affordability, but also um, enervates the social vitality of our neighborhoods, uh, makes it less likely for us to form relationships with other human beings. Yeah, I mean, I asked you, how does Canada fit into it? And in the book, you actually spend quite a bit of time unpacking Vancouver House, which is a project by Bjark Engels Group in Vancouver. Take us through that project. I found some of uh, some of the stuff you described about that project, obviously not only unnerving, but kind of in its own little universe. Like there's there's certain elements of some of the other typologies that make a little more sense um, in, as far as investment properties uh, and that sort of, or, or icons for uh, a city that's trying to make a statement uh, and, and not only make a visual statement but obviously uh you know there's there's statements embedded in that about um, investment and becoming global and in attracting investors but vancouver house is is interesting so take us through that project and how that fits into your broader argument yeah yeah well vancouver house is a, is a yeah it's a fascinating project um designed by brk angles as you say and developed by uh, the very important uh canadian development company west bank so, um, well, the, the project has a very unique physical form, um, has, has some low-lying podium-like structures at its base. It's situated, uh, the site is situated right next to the Granville Street Bridge. And the footprint of the building, the, the, the shape that the building has when it meets the ground is a, a triangle. And then as it rises up to its top, its shape and plan converts to a, to a, a, a rectangle. So you could imagine it, it, it's, a, it's a kind of quote unquote dynamic sculptural form that metamorphosizes from that triangle to a square. So it's very unique. It's, so it's a top heavy building from certain perspectives. It looks like it'll just fall over because the base is so small compared to the top. Now, now um, you know the 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 developers in BRK Ingalls referred to it as a yeah quote unquote living sculpture, and uh, and BRK Ingalls had a had a quote that was roughly like it's it's a curtain opening Vancouver to the world and the world to Vancouver, um, and and it really re was a, it represented almost a new moment in the development of Vancouver where an internationally renowned architect like Bjarke Ingels was brought to design such a such a exotically shaped um, kind of eccentric building. And in many ways, it's a beautiful building. I, I don't want to den it, you know, it's very complex talking about architecture in relation to money and power, because so much of beautiful architecture over history has been the product of extreme um, wealth and elitism and inequality and all that jazz. So in some ways, B.R.K. Engels building is a very beautiful building. Um, it also happened to be um, marketed um, extensively around the world. It's a condo. Um, so there were sales centers, um, you know, sales centers in Vancouver. So it was marketed to Canadians, but simultaneously it was also marketed 
um, predominantly around Asia through sales centers and billboards in cities like Taipei and you know multi um, multi language websites and whatnot. So and and uh, the marketing campaign listed twenty reasons to uh, to invest in 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 Vancouver House or to buy a place in Vancouver House. The number one reason was um, it just was said super prime. Um, so it was like. And that was interesting because it's interesting, you know, the ideologies and rhetorics around surprise. You're like, oh, what the the number one reason to live here is that it's a super prime, and I'm intrigued. This language of super prime, this term, it's a uh, one that's sort of risen to prominence in recent decades in the era of finance capitalism, and to me, that was signifying that this is uh, it's a super prime investment. It's a super prime in property. It's uh, a, a way to invest in this uh, upper echelon uh, that's catering to a, a global elite, right? Uh, wealthy Americans, wealthy Canadians, and wealthy uh, folks from from Asia. And and, and uh, you know, and let's let's you know, my research was also telling me that the you know the the numbers of very wealthy people in the world are uh, mushrooming, and that's a kind of product of finance capitalism. And these folks love to uh, buy multiple properties around the world. So it was like hmm, interesting. This 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 unique sculpture is uh, is it's as if the shape itself is being used to broadcast, and even in the words of BRK Engels, right, and and the developers broadcast to the world. Um, and we know that there's this kind of burgeoning, mushrooming uh, global investor class that is buying multiple homes that often result in zombie urbanism. And so there seemed to be a kind of nexus in the shape of the building um, and it's uh, a kind of rhetoric and uh, marketing um, ideologies. And, you know, so when I was writing the book, the, the building was incomplete. It, uh, it was hard to know to what degree it would be fully occupied or not, but it seemed all indications if, if uh, the history was to repeat itself that, that there was going to be a bunch of seldomly used units owned by, uh, by a kind of wealthy elite. Um, very interestingly, I thought very interestingly, um, one of the one of the reasons to on that list of twenty reasons was to um, that that each unit in the building, um, every unit that was sold, would be connected philanthropically to a home that would be built in a Cambodian slum, and it was called the world's first one to one home gifting program. So literally for every condo, there was, uh, and they, they actually did this, built a, a, a home in Cambodia for a, a, a family in need. And then I found this a, a very fascinating dimension because also within contemporary capitalism, there's a very strong emphasis on, by, on the part of capitalists to, um, to practice philo philanthropy. And I it's a very complex issue, um, and 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 in some ways, I couldn't help but feel like this was a very um, kind of strange and disingenuous attempt to kind of mask the the problematics of of what Vancouver House represented in terms of the affordability crisis in Vancouver, the the inequality in the city. Um, that this kind of philanthropic gesture was 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 masking actually the all the negative socio-cultural effects that the building was, yeah. was, ha was having. And th that's what really jumped out at me when reading about 
uh, Vancouver House is exactly that. The, the I don't even know really how to wrap my head around it. This wonky idea of uh, a one-for-one gifting model. It I couldn't help but think that this is just this smacks of an attempt to absolve the ultra rich and their compatriots from everything you just described, uh, you know, adding to increasing inequality, all kinds of issues of lack of access to a market, all these things. It was an attempt to whitewash over what are clearly uh, unfriendly, to put it mildly, um, behaviors. And that to me indicates a level of awareness because to feel guilty enough that you need to be marketed to with the notion that you're actually helping some poor family on the other side of the planet to make you feel better about this $12 million penthouse you're not going to actually spend any time in, to me, implies that you have to be aware that what you're doing is uh, exacerbating the, 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 all the negative effects you describe. And it's this question of awareness that I want to sort of redirect us to or or take us to another point in the conversation awareness with let's say coupled with uh, a a concept of culpability and i want to ask you about that as it relates to architects because you talk a lot about architecture in the book obviously the book is about architecture and financialization but a lot of it sounds a bit abstract in a way where architecture is a, a discipline or an industry but there the, the, the people involved is what I want to ask you about, because there are people involved and, and you reference quite a few of them, obviously, um, you know, projects by Zaha Hadid architects, shop architects, Herzog and Namiron are mentioned. You spend quite a bit of time talking about um, One High Park by Rogers Stirk Harbor. You also spend uh, quite a bit of time unpacking 432 Park Avenue in New York, Raphael Vinoli. Um, so these are, these are, you know, architecture firms that have a lot of people involved, but arguably they're architects. So I want to ask you, how do you feel, or is there a way architects should be held accountable for their involvement in, in, in the issues you're talking about? It's a really interesting question. Yeah, it's a, a very interesting and very complex, I think. So I, I think, I mean, the simple answer to your question, I think is should architects be held accountable? I think yes. I think the answer is yes. And I mean, in the, in the way that I think all of us need to, be, uh, need to be held accountable for our actions. So, you know, my argument is that architecture, as, I, as we spoke about at the beginning of our conversation, is playing an integral necessary role within financial capitalism and architects need to be uh, held accountable for that role and be be responsible you know own up to it now I do think at the same time um, well no I, I shouldn't say the same time because I don't think that in any way this contradicts this it's like finance capitalism has become so pervasive like we've all another word that's associated with this sort of rise of financial finance capitalism is the phrase financialization right and and i would say you know to varying degrees all of us in a country like canada 
um, have been financialized in some way or some form. You know, I mean, I own account condo in Vancouver, so you know, I'm in 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 you know, incorporated into this, you know, very decades long relationship with a bank. Was I immune from the thought of like, will this property go up or down when I bought it? No, because I myself am I'm sort of within this logic. So, so of course, all of the, the developers, the politicians, the architects, the buyers, are all swirling around within this cultural milieu, which financial values play such an integral and important role. And it's so central that it's almost like oxygen. So it's very hard to escape it. Now, though, I think, I think that doesn't, you know, it's, it's, it's a kind of realism and a nuance to say, I think we're all somehow involved and no one does not have blood on their hands, but that does not absolve us from considering and, and uh, honestly and truthfully like what our role is and uh, trying to find, uh, you know, if one, if one faces that culpability directly, um, you know, having to ask the question, well, do we want to propagate this? And if we don't, in what ways could we could we kind of shift and reorient? So I think, yes, architects are culpable um, in the, alongside the plant, the urban planners, the politicians and all of us. And, and you know, and I mean, even I would put myself, I mean, I wrote this book, but I'm also uh, embroiled in it. <laughs> yeah, I understand what you mean when you say that there are so many elements to this it's it, it's unfair to heap all of the blame onto one group you know we all share uh we all share a part of that blame it falls on all of our laps i understand that and that sounds probably right definitely diplomatic but it certainly tonally it doesn't seem to fit with the 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 arguments of today you know the the narrative that is dominating the media today it feels like we need villains <laughs> and i don't want to even really move into that because it's silly and i don't i don't agree with it but at the same time it's it, it feels like some people should know better and i mean there's a line in your book i actually want to pull out and kind of put you on the hot seat and explain a bit you say architecture has long grappled with how to respond to the shortcomings of capitalism Okay, so my question is, how has architecture <laughs> grappled with that? Do you mean yeah. that in an intellectual sense, <laughs> yeah. the same way, you know, academics or any you know, in some other concept? Or do you do you actually are you actually saying that architects have built protest buildings, <laughs> quote unquote, protest buildings to the the power of the machine that's just taken over? And like you say, you know, it's like oxygen. You can't do anything about it. But I wonder, like, okay, how, how, how have architects or how, how has architecture truly grappled with it? Or is it just the way things are? Oh my gosh, Peter, it's a really, okay. Yeah, that's a, that's, that's a good question. Okay, so, hmm, I think, okay, just being, being very um, kind of honest with you, I think most architecture has not long grappled with uh, this. So, you know, 
I think, you know, me as an architect who spends a lot of time in the academy, you know, I'm a professor at UBC and, and spend a lot of my time teaching and kind of reading about architecture and then and enters into this kind of um, academic conversation. And so I think there has been some architects and some architectural theoreticians and, you know, historians and, and thought leaders who have long grappled with this question. But the majority of the profession, as far as I could tell, has not grappled with the question. So, you know, in my book, I reference someone like Manfredo Tafuri, who was this very influential architecture historian um, in Italy, who was very active in the kind of 60s and 70s. He, he wrote, for example, a very very difficult and complicated book, um, but it was very influential called Architecture and Utopia. And he, he really brilliantly um, kind of argued that he was like, look, all of these architectural avant-garde, you know, in, in the 20th century that, that, that we have fallen in love with and have many lovable qualities, you know, um, different forms of modernism and expressionism. He's like, he's like, actually, this avant-garde that was seemingly kind of in some ways critiquing capitalism was was actually really the forf the most leading edge forefront of capitalism it was it was pushing the capitalist project forward so he he was consciously trying to make buildings that um responded to Manfredo Tafuri's critique and were not part of this and you know very hard to do but he but he you know he was like okay so the dominant mode of making buildings within the city is is this way um they seem to be vehicles for for money to smoothly flow over the city i'm going to make in his own ways he did make protest buildings he made buildings that that didn't have the the aesthetics um that match that dominant um kind of uh, urbanist thrust of the time they were almost breaks within the city like barriers to the flow of capital so but 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 of course Aldo Rossi and a guy like Manfredo Tafuri are exceptions, not the norm. I think the 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 most of the buildings that are made in you know were made in the 1970s, the 80s, the 90s into the present um, are um, completely synthetic uh, with the, the the logics of capital because. Because I mean, let's—it's an obvious thing, but but let's remember. I mean, architects need architects. Architects, you know, become architects because they want to design things, <clears throat> and uh, I think it's very hard to turn down a project. And um, and so they need—they want to build, they need to build, and uh, money's necessitated to build. So it's 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 very far, few and far between. I think that you have architects. Um, that really are, are are taking the time to kind of critically sit back and go, mm, is this exactly how we should we should do it? Uh, and you know, and the forces of the marketers. I mean, I talk about in my book how you know it's a very interesting thing. You know, mark like the marketing teams are are brought onto projects. Um, you know, at the same moment the architects are, if not before, and they're paid more. Which, you know, you say, oh, well, what does that mean? Well, it means that they're more important. It means that they're more important. And um, they're paid far more than architects. And, and so the architects uh, are, are operating 
not within a position of a lot of power in the overall dynamics of the developer and the marketers. And I think it's, it's hard for them to uh, have the um, ability and the space to, to step back and form a kind of critical position. That's not to absolve them though of, 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 of doing that. Um, you know? Um, yeah, I, I, no, I think you're right. I, think, I mean, in a practical world, I think it's it's unfair to assume that architects have the power to uh, redirect the, the the I would say the ship, but it's more like a tanker that yes. is plowing through the water of of our reality right now. You know, to use another awkward metaphor, if if we tried to look at it as cart and horse, right? Finance or even broader capitalism is the horse pulling the cart. Architecture is the cart. You can't put the cart before the horse. I know that's an awkward metaphor because, as you say, as I quoted at the very beginning, uh, finance capitalism is architecture and architecture is finance capitalism. But, you know, again, like I said, there's practical, uh, sort of practical re realities to that. But then, you know, any, anyone who's sort of been even marginally aware of the history of finance in the last uh, or at least capitalism in the last 150 or so years knows that it takes major shocks to the system to redirect um, people's uh, awareness of and government's control of money and capitalism and stuff like that. You know, major social changes happened at the end of the French Revolution relating to money or even farther back uh, the end of the, the bubonic plague as a uh, labor uh, labor was killed off and the sort of the growth of the beginning of a, awareness of labor rights but then French Revolution then you had first world war second world war depression all that stuff but then it, you know in every point in history there was there was major sort of structural changes but then you get to the financial crisis of 2008 and that should have been a depression. We just didn't like the name of it, so we called it a, the Great Recession. But afterwards, nothing happened. The Obama administration came in, tried very weakly to institute change. Nothing happened. Um, and now here we are in COVID. Right? It feels like we might be coming to the end of it, but we said that a year ago, so who really knows? Uh, this is a shock to the system and often connected to those shocks beyond just, you know, financial reform is social reform. And the big question is, are we seeing a social revolution now that will, that will redirect the tanker going through the ocean? And you, you point to this a little bit at the very end of your book, because admittedly you basically finished the book just as COVID crisis hit in the early part of 2020. So no one could have seen it coming. You couldn't have seen it coming, but you do squeeze in at the very end, a little comment about, about the moment we're in right now, COVID uh, protests around the developing world about police brutality, uh, racial inequality, all sorts of things. So here's the question. And I'll, I'll wrap it up with this because I would kind of like to end on a positive note if we can. Uh, is there any hope post COVID? Is there any hope in what we're talking about or are we, uh, do we need to sort of be pessimistic realists and say that really what this is, is uh, a, what your book is, is basically a, a, a sharp reminder to anyone that thinks that tomorrow will be any different than today. They should really sort of 
check their Naya TV? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or is there hope? Is there hope? Oh, man. Well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I want to have hope. I mean, I personally have hope. But but as you say, I, I, I mean, I think it's hard to, I mean, how deep does the hope go? Because, I mean, as you said, I mean, 2007, 2008, it did not change anything significantly. Um, in many ways, things have become more and more accelerated. So, you know, will this time be different? I hope so, but I'm not entirely... Um, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I'm skeptical. I think remarkably during COVID, um, COVID itself has accelerated many things, uh, as we know, um, you know, we're, we, we were, we were, we've been long moving towards spending more and more time online and COVID accelerated that radically. There is an argument to be made that, that COVID accelerated financialization, um, and you know you could describe that in many ways, but I mean the stock markets. I mean every day is different. It's so volatile, but um, you know they have risen remarkably during COVID. The number of people um, participating in the stock market in a country like the United States has shot up during COVID. People is amazing. People stayed home. Many people, millions of people. The the, the research is starting to show. Um, we're like, okay, well, what am I going to do at home? I'm going to, um, what, what about trading stocks? I'll get an online account. So, so there, 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 there's actually a lot of, you know, and, and, um, you know, all this stimulus money that, that was poured into the economy. I mean, and, and let's say in the United States, I mean, anecdotally, so many people with these checks, um, you know, upper middle-class folks who didn't really need the checks that much or didn't, I shouldn't say that much, didn't need them at all, you know, put it into Bitcoin or Ethereum. And, and so there's, there's, there's a lot of evidence saying, well, things got more financialized. It just intensified this. And then, you know, real estate's gone crazy in so many places. There's, there, there are new, you know, uh, in China and in, 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 you know, uh, like Guangzhou, um, but Miami, uh, I mean, the Vancouver real estate market is, is just accelerated to even greater heights during COVID. So there's lots of evidence to, to, to say things are not moving in a good direction. But how, I mean, you know, I ask at one point, like how extreme does the inequality have to get till the whole system just totally breaks down? I mean, parallel to all that heightened financialization is is a, a period of remarkable reckoning with inequality. And part of, of course, this whole story of architecture and financialization is one of inequality. And it may be, I mean, the optimist in me wants to hope that the 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 the, the things become so extreme at one point that they must break. And maybe out of our isolation that we've all had to endure. Um, during COVID, that this kind of deep human craving for rich and meaningful bodily interactions with other human beings, you know, bumping into people in the city, going to clubs and, and all of that, which, which really the financialization of architecture is really a reduction, you know, of the physical bodily life of our housing and our cities that's what financial 
capitalism is move, moves our, our architecture of financial capitalism is a kind of desocialized, uh, zombied um, home alone in a the the ninetieth floor of a, of a condo in the air where you can't even your elevator deposits you rate in your unit if you're ever there. So so that's what finance capitalism wants, and is is achieving through architecture. And and maybe COVID has helped us just go. Oh my gosh, when I was just in cyberspace, I realize I need to to be with all these amazing other humans. And 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 that coupled with this reckoning about elitism and all sorts of inequalities will will tip us into some sort of demand for different types of buildings and different types of spaces. I hope for that. I hope for that. And 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 I think you know, it, it, it's it's going to be an accumulation of small actions on all of our parts, small but meaningful actions amounting to something significant. So the more and more architects think about it and the more and more that they encourage the marketers and encourage their developers to make buildings that entangle us and 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 enrich our lives by by interaction, encouraging interactions with with others is is part of the way out of this. Yeah, I tend to agree with you. I mean, it's. I've never been a fan of crystal balling anything. It's it never turns things never turn out the way you expect, but change is inevitable. So I think in some form or another, uh, as you say, there's going to be a tipping point where just people are too tired of the obvious. Like it really is obvious how, <laughs> how unequal everything is and how uh, you know the, the distances between the the point one percent, it's not even one percent anymore, and, and all the rest of existence, all the rest of humanity. It's just it's disgusting how obvious it is. So mm -hmm. I tend to agree with you that it, it, something's going to happen. It's just. In this exact moment, it often feels like we're the dog barking at the car where we wouldn't know what to do with it if we got it. We just got to, you know, scream at it kind of thing. And that might be what the future is. We don't know what the form will look like, but we do know that something's going to change. Right. right. So anyway, yeah. on that front, I want to say this has been fantastic. I'd love to continue the, the conversation. This feels like the kind of conversation that would be just as uh just as valuable, just as entertaining uh, in a classroom or a boardroom as it would be in a bar. It'd be fun to sort of unpack these things over a beer. So hopefully we can do that one day when things get back to whatever normalcy is supposed to look like, bars reopen. But anyway, um, I want to say congratulations. The book is fantastic. Uh, I hope it gets a lot of attention. Um, I actually hope it, act it gets added to some, uh, some syllabuses in uh, architecture schools because I think the next generation needs to be acutely aware of what you're talking about. So again, thank you, Matthew, for joining us. And uh, let's uh, let's circle back to this at some point in the future and see where we're at and see if the, the barking dogs who have got the car really do know what to do with it. Thanks so much, Peter. I really enjoyed uh, speaking with you. And yes, I hope we can continue the conversation in a, in a sweaty, throbbing, um, uh, cool bar. Exactly. A well-designed one by a, uh, uh, a thoughtful, aware architect. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Perfect. It's a plan. Thank you Thanks. so much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you for joining us on this very special episode of Bevel. Be sure to check out our other episodes, as well as plenty of other great content at Canadian Interiors, by visiting canadianinteriors.com, where you can find our social media links and how to subscribe to the magazine. 
And of course, we encourage you to share Bevel with your networks. This is Peter Sobchak, and until next time, listeners, keep designing.